The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. Amen. Thank you, Peter. Beautiful. Well, if, if some of you guys are here last week, I mentioned that I was starting the No Complain November. And I'm discovering that I'm still complaining. And I realized that I was complaining about this text and even its difficulty. So even in the email that I sent out last night, I think there was a layer of complaint and grumbling behind what I said that I'd rather preach any other text in the Bible than this one. Well, one of the first rules in seminary you learn in preaching class, at least my professor drilled into us, was never apologize. And what he meant by that was never apologize for the text that you're preaching or never apologize for your lack of preparation or lack of understanding because you're undermining your credibility or the text before you ever begin. And so the Apostle Peter did say at the end of Second Peter, that he did say about the Apostle Paul's writings that some of them, there's things in them that are hard to understand, 2 Peter 3:16. So yes, this is true, but nevertheless, we know that God has said to us that all scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So why don't we pray before we begin this difficult passage and ask that God would fulfill his promise that we be equipped. Father, we do ask for the illumination from your Holy Spirit. We ask for help. We ask that you would take this portion of your word and you've said it's, it's all your words. These are not ours and that we need them, that we would be equipped and competent and so we pray that you would do your work in us, help us to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, and pray that, Lord, you would meet us at your table. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's read this text together. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 16, and we're going straight through the epistle of Corinthians. There's a couple difficult passages uh, dealing with worship this one, and then later we'll get to the, to the difficulties of some of the spiritual gifts as well. But here in 1 Corinthians 11, picking up at verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesied, prophesies with his Head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. 
Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her grace is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of God. Wow. Okay. I want to start by trying to clear some debris that um, as we dig into this text, uh, it might seem at first blush, and, and some people have struggled with reading passages like this, they think that, well, Paul is, is against women, or Paul has an ax to grind with women, or he isn't up to speed with equality. He's behind the times, and he's stuck on a low view of women. And some hold this view because they really don't believe that this is God's word that I just read, and actually it should be rejected. And they would just say, Paul's wrong here. He's just wrong. Well, if Paul is wrong here, but then he's right in the next verses after that, what does that make you? Then you are a higher apostle than Paul, and you get to decide what is of God and what is not of God. That would put you on a higher plane than Paul. I don't think we want to go there because then you become the ultimate determiner of what is true and what is not true. And the Bible doesn't tell us that we can pick and choose of what we can accept or reject about Paul. So I don't want us to do that. On the other hand, others don't reject this passage, they reinterpret it. So that uh, what they would see here is that equality equals sameness. And they would, and there's a lot of people that just wanna emphasize Genesis one. And what we're seeing here is that Paul's emphasizing Genesis two. So Genesis 1 tells us clearly that male and female are both made in the image of God. We believe in the imago dei, but as we read in Genesis 2, which we're going to dig into, that Paul gives some more specifics about how the man was made first and how he brought the woman to the man and made the, the woman from the man, and it was the man needed a helper, and God brings a helper to him, and we see there is a difference in roles between male and female in Genesis 2. And so there are some that will try to reject the patriarchal language that's embedded all throughout this text. It goes back to creation and ultimately back to the Godhead itself where he begins in verse three. So I don't think we can duck Paul's emphasis here that he's getting at wives honoring their husbands in worship as the husband is their head. So the question remains, did Paul have a low view of women? Well, a couple things to consider, and, and I gotta tell you, I mean, I've done a lot of research on this this week. There's more research. I told Kim last week, last night, I got 37 pages of notes, and she basically said, well, that means you got a long way to go, because usually you're trying to boil it down by, the end, by Sunday, and it just kept getting bigger. It was going the other way. Um, you're not getting 37 pages, but, you're going, to get, you're going to hear from other people 
that are a lot smarter than me, okay? Spurgeon said, he who doesn't quote others doesn't deserve to be quoted, and he who doesn't use the brains of others uh, proves he has no brains of his own. And uh, so you're gonna hear from other people that are a little smarter than me. So uh, Kenneth Bailey put it like this in his commentary. He said, Paul could have easily have said, if Paul has a low view of women, he would have said something like this, as regard women leading and worship, because they are praying and prophesying here. And Paul doesn't have any issues with that. So if Paul had a low view of women, he would have said, well, this subject is too complicated. Have the women stay seated in the congregation and not to say anything if he had a low view of women. But he's saying, carry on, women prophets. The church needs your prophetic ministry, but please, I beg, you cover your heads when you prophesy so the congregation will not be distracted away from your prophetic word. It's the message that matters, and that's what the people need to hear and remember. So if he had a low view of women, he wouldn't have women speaking at all. First thing, first argument. Number, next thing is that what's astounding in this passage is keep in mind the Apostle Paul was a Jew coming out of Jew- Judaism, schooled in the rabbinical tradition, schooled in the temple, and what would have worship been in the Jewish synagogue? The women would be seated in another place altogether and absolutely not allowed to say a word. And so here Paul commends their praying and prophesying, just cover their heads. Uh, Anthony Thistleton in his commentary on Corinthians says this, the principle, and this is the next argument for um, Paul's high view of women, is that there's a principle of mutuality and reciprocity that's well expressed in verse 11 and 12 in particular. So Paul had a, a low view of women what do we make of verses 11 and 12 in 1 Corinthians 11? So he's saying women is, woman is nothing apart from the man. Man is nothing apart from, from woman. In other words, man can only be truly man if he can be so in relation to woman as truly woman. Woman can only be truly woman only if she can be so in relation to man as truly man. So if Paul has a, a low view of women, these verses certainly wouldn't be in here. So the other is just to consider Paul's ministry Uh, He went to Lydia. Lydia didn't have a husband, no mention of her, and yet he goes to her, shares the gospel with her. When he's released from prison, prison, he takes his apostolic band and goes to her house, where obviously she was a leader in the community, having some type of small group meeting at her house. He um, commends Phoebe in Romans. It's possible she was a deacon. He has appreciation of... uh, these wonderful names to pronounce, Euodia and Syntyche, who work side by side with him in the gospel. And he says that Priscilla and Aquila risked their lives for him. Why would Priscilla risk her life for a man if he consistently demeaned women? And his view of intimacy in marriage as involving mutual pleasure in 1 Corinthians 7, 4, and 5, which I've already preached on, was well ahead of his time and very much not something that somebody would say if they had a low view of women. So I think we wanna say that Paul didn't have a low view of women, but his view of women is different than the cultural river today, which has a lot of confusing streams that are flowing. And many of them are trying to exalt women by making them the same as men, and that's actually not honoring women and their diversity. And so, Let's jump into this and let's try to bring out a few things that are clear. And there are plenty of things here that are fuzzy, okay? We're gonna try to stick to the clear. Verse three, 
What does Paul want us to understand? I like when you, you know, just tell me plainly. I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So that's what he wants you to understand, is there's something going on here that he's using the word head three times. The man has a head, Christ. The wife has a head, her husband. And Jesus has a head, God the Father. So Paul wants us to know that even Christ himself has a head. You see, Jesus took on flesh and the Father sent him. The scripture never says or speaks of the Son sending the Father or the Son commanding the Father. You're just not gonna find it. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology puts it like this. In redemption, the Father sends his Son to the world. The Son comes as an obedient to the Father and dies for our sins. After the Son has ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit comes to equip and empower the church. The Father did not come to die for our sins, nor did the Holy Spirit. The Father was not poured out on the church at Pentecost, a new covenant power, nor was the Son. Each member of the Trinity has distinct roles or functions. Differences in role and authority between the members of the Trinity are thus completely consistent with equal importance, personhood, and deity. As we say in our Westminster Confession of Faith in the Godhead, they're the same in substance, equal in power and glory, right? Yet ontologically, in their being, in their essence, they're one, yet in the economy, in the roles they play in the Godhead, we do see a submission taking place. The Son, the role of the Holy Spirit is always to glorify the Son, So if you ever find a Holy Spirit church, it better be big Jesus church because if they're talking about the Spirit more than Jesus, it ain't a Holy Spirit church because the Holy Spirit is the shy member of the Trinity always glorifying the Son and magnifying the Son. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. And the role of Jesus in the function and in the economy of redemption is always to magnify his Father to speak the words from the Father, to do the will of the Father, to lay his life down in accord with the Father's will. And it's all about the Father. Even take, if this cup can pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so we have differences in roles, even though they're equal in power and glory. So Paul wants us to see that the same is true with how he made male and female. They're equal, they're both image bearers, yet they have different functions in the economy of the roles that they have been given to play out in the marriage relationship and how that plays itself out even in the church. And so Paul says, I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ, the head of a woman is her husband, the head of Christ is God. So Grudem goes on to say, just as God the Father has authority over the Son, though the two are equal in deity, Uh, So in a marriage, the husband has authority over the wife, although they're equal in personhood. In this case, the man's role is like that of God the Father, and the woman's role is parallel to that of God the Son. They're equal in importance, but they have different roles. 
So in the context of 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16, Paul sees this as the basis for telling the Corinthians to wear the different kinds of clothing appropriate for the men and women of that day so that the distinctions between men and women might be outwardly evident in the Christian community. So Paul obviously knows, as I mentioned, he obviously knows Genesis 1, yet he's reminding the church of Genesis 2 and he brings this out in verses eight and nine. For he says in verse eight and nine, the man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So we see that man is in the image of glory of God, that man does not originate from the woman, nor was man created for the woman's sake. We see that the woman is created uh, for the glory of man from the man and created for the man's sake. That's what Paul is expounding on Genesis 2. So what does that mean? Well, another smarter person than I, Richard Pratt, he says, Paul called woman the glory of their husbands because this is one of the unique roles in, crea- in the creation order. According to Genesis 2, 18 uh, to 20, God created Eve to make it possible for the human race to fulfill the task originally given to Adam. For this reason, Moses called Eve a helper suitable for Adam. And the Hebrew word helper is this interesting word, ezer. And it doesn't mean inferior, but aid or assistant. It can be used as social superiors. Moreover, the term suitable for means corresponding to or the mirror image of. Eve was the glory of Adam in a special way. With her joining Adam, the human race could become all that God had intended it to be. Both she and Adam would receive honor as a result. So what in the world was the problem? Well, while praying or prophesying, and we'll get into prophecy when we get into chapter 14, so let's not go there this morning, but while praying or prophesying, some of the men were covering their heads and some of the women were not. Well, what was wrong with that? Well, another commentary, this is David Garland's summary, is that the women were wearing their hair in an unfeminine way and men were wearing their hair in an unmasculine way. So men were covering their heads and this would look like, you know, why don't you close your eyes for a minute? Everybody close their eyes just for a second. Okay, you can open your eyes now. Now, I'm just wondering... If this would be a distraction to you guys, if, if I, where's Will? He's not even here now. If I were to preach like this, okay, and I was to have a little covering for my hair, would this be a distraction to you if I were to preach like this? What do you think? I mean, see, I have freedom in Christ that I could do this, but I could be a stumbling block to my brothers and sisters if I was to preach like this. Well, apparently, the men, if they were covering their heads, it, was, it would be like us putting a ribbon in our hair today. It would make them look like a woman. And the women that were wearing and not covering their heads, they were experiencing... Galatians 3.28, that there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female, you know, slave or free, we're all one in Christ Jesus. They had this realized eschatology and they were now saying, well, all things are lawful. Paul said all things are lawful and he said, Galatians 3.28, therefore I can do whatever I want in worship. 
So this head covering thing, let's get rid of that. We're equal. We're same. And just as Paul was talking about the whole issue of meat and causing people to stumble, Paul was concerned that, wait a minute, you got these Jews that have come out of Jewish synagogue that the women weren't even allowed to be in the same place. And now they're not even honoring the, the cultural markers that mark it out that you are honoring your husband. And you're not even doing that. And now it's causing people to stumble in the worship service. So the idea here is, as Garland says, is that women prophets were either throwing off their veils, symbol, symbols of their inferiority or subordination which characterize their day-to-day -day living to show that they had transcended sexual disorientation or let their hair down in deliberate attempt to discard the, the traditional markers of gender distinction. In either case, it is assumed that the Christian women got carried away with their transformed spiritual status and carried things too far by breaching sexual decorum. They misapplied Paul's teaching that there's neither male nor female and emphasized they realized eschatology and they sought to eradicate any male or female distinctions. And furthermore, as Stephen Um says, and he says, but in that particular culture, not to wear a shawl meant that the woman was essentially saying, I'm not too concerned with the relationship with my husband. Because for a married woman to take her shawl off and let her hair loose like that was, was basically her way of saying to everybody, I'm available. Okay? And so what was happening, if you notice the distinction here, okay, Look carefully at the distinction between shame and glory in 1 Corinthians 11, or dishonor and glory. So what he's saying is this. So follow, the, follow Paul's logic, okay? Everybody's got a head, verse two. The head of every man is Christ. The head of, every, of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesied with his head, physical head, this is how I'm translating this for you, dishonors his head. Well, who is his head? Well, verse two, so who is his head? That would be Christ, okay? But every wife who prays or prophesies with her physical head uncovered dishonors her head. Who is her head? Verse two, her husband. So what he's saying is, is that, but every wife who prophesies or prays with her head uncovered dishonors or shames her husband since it's the same as if her head were, sh were shaven. That would be dishonoring to her husband. So then he, then he pulls out kind of the proverbial, you know, logical conclusion sometimes when Paul will, will kind of call a bluff in verse six. Well, if she's not gonna cover her head, why don't just have her, you know, go the whole way and cut her hair short? It's disgraceful for a wife to do that, he's saying. And this is cultural context stuff we're dealing with here. So he's saying the man ought to cover his head, since he's the image and glory of God, and the woman is the glory of man, so he's making a contrast between glory and shame. And what he's concerned about is that the wives are honoring their husbands in the worship service. And so the, uh, the created distinction between man and woman should be honored in the church. And this idea of symbolic, you know, gender-bending actions in which women and men are, are in, in Corinth were seeking to uh, reject specific gender identities, um, 
you know, what Richard Hayes is saying, this is not a sign of authentic spirituality, but of adolescence impatience with the world in which God has placed us. We're not disembodied spirits. Consequently, spiritual maturity in Christ will lead us to become mature women and men in Christ. And our dress and outward appearance should appropriately reflect our gender identity. This is interesting where the different commentators go with this is like, okay, what's the conclusion for us in this? And what they're saying is, is that men should dress like men and women should dress like women. And the gender uh, distinction should remain distinct. And we live in a culture where, there were, you know, these things are kind of, it's okay to dress, you know, if you want to dress like a guy or, you know, and you even answer Recently, I went to a, you know, one of those uh, urgent care places, and instead of saying, are you male or female, I mean, it was five questions they asked me to kind of, you know, how do I want to identify, and all these questions is, who am I? You know, and it was like, that's how, that's the world we live in now. And Paul is actually going against that all the way back in the time of Corinth, where the same problems were happening back then, and gender distinctions were becoming blurred, and, and what Richard Hayes is saying, he says, in a time of rampant confusion about gender identity in our culture, Paul's teaching on this matter is timely for us. A healthy community needs men and women together, not a group of people striving for sexless neutrality. Craig Bomberg, same thing. Most interpreters agree that the one timeless principle that may be deduced from this passage is that Christians should not try to blur all distinctions between the sexes. Gnosticism may have valued the androgynous human being at, uh, as the return to some pristine ideal, but Christianity recognizes that God created men and women as sexual beings with sexual differences. So we must not try to efface these distinctions by dressing and grooming in ways that will make it impossible to recognize a person's gender, or worse sto- still, by changing our sexual appearance through transvestite behavior. If God made you a male in the new heavens and new earth, you are gonna be a male. And if God made you a female in the new heavens and new earth, you're gonna be a female. And that's okay, that's a good thing, that's how God made you. And you should be content with that. John Stevenson says the same thing. He says, it's, it's good to pray, it's good to prophesy, but it's not good to engage in these activities in a way that would dishonor the Lord or not love our neighbors, especially those in the church. So the question then is, okay, should we wear head coverings today? Well, depends on our culture and our context. That should determine how best to contextualize in becoming all things in order to win some. Esther Hudson is living in the Middle East this morning in a culture that takes head coverings very seriously. And I would suggest to Esther that if she wants to go out in public right there in the middle of where she is, and I won't say the country, that it's probably very appropriate for her to wear a head covering, wouldn't you agree? And so she does. And so she wants to, she doesn't want to bring shame on her, on, on Brian and she doesn't want to draw attention to herself in a culture where if she was uncovered, that showing her hair would be a sign of I'm available and I'm a loose woman. And she's not wanting to communicate either of those things. Kenneth Bailey, who's a missionary in the Middle East, says in conservative Islamic countries today, the public head covering of a woman signals to all that she's a respectable woman who has a family that cares and anyone who harasses her will face consequences. It's a form of protection for her. So in that context, 
should Esther wear a head covering in worship would depend on if she might be a stumbling block to converted Muslims to Christianity. And if so, then perhaps a head covering would be a good way for her to demonstrate honor to Brian and not flaunting her freedoms that might cause others to stumble. But in the U.S., we have a different cultural clue to identify that you are married. What would be the cultural clue to identify that you are married? A ring on your finger. You know, I was with uh, Will Hussan yesterday with a bunch of his friends, and some of the guys that he works with, they're in an environment where they're machinists, and having a wedding ring is a detriment. And so Will has a plastic some type of plastic ring on his fingers. Well, one of his friends, Tony, actually has a tattoo of his wedding date on his finger. And it looks really like a wedding ring until you look closely. And I said, hey, explain that to me. He's like, that is my wedding date. He said, I can't wear a ring at work. So he just had it tattooed into his finger. I thought, how cool is that? You know, <laughs> tell Tony he made it into the, into the sermon. Yeah. Um, and so... I think those markers are important for us in our culture, but I think also what Paul is getting at is how do we love our neighbors well? How do we love each other in the body of Christ? If we're doing things in worship that would draw attention to ourselves, it may flaunt freedoms, but if you're looking at me and all you can think about is what in the world is Charlie doing wearing a cowboy's hat? in worship, it's gonna be hard for you to focus on Jesus, wouldn't it? Because I'm, I'm it, you know, there's freedom but sometimes our freedom, like showing off your belly or showing off cleavage, showing off your yoga pants, those things, you know, show off things that you shouldn't be showing off in worship. I remember I had a professor in seminary once and he was telling me he was trying to preach and a woman had this little circle thing right here on her chest that where, where her dress came together. And he's trying to preach and it was a bullseye. And he said all he kept wanting to do was look at the bullseye because it was a stumbling block. And so the idea here is, how do we honor each other in worship? He wants women to honor their husbands. And if women are throwing off the clues that they're, not, that they're married and, and giving clues that they're not married, that doesn't bring glory to the husband, but shame to him. And so in conclusion, I would say that all of us um, have, everybody has to willingly submit to something. And it looks like, as you read a text like this, boy, women get the, get the tough one. And what I was saying at the beginning, though, is that the head of Christ is God. And Jesus, his whole life, we see how he loved the church, his bride. And we see him going as, and doing what a husband and showing us what a heavenly husband looks like. And it's a beautiful thing that he would give up himself to the point of death to save his bride. And we come to table to celebrate that this morning, that Christ gave himself to beautify his bride. And we are all, in that sense, wives or the bride. We are all recipients of a husband who gave himself for us. And so as we apply the analogy to marriage on earth, we have different roles that we play. The role of the father was not easy in redemption. When you consider the example of Abraham and his son, was it easy for Abraham to take up the knife and to slaughter his son? Was that an easy role for the father to do? It was, in Romans 8 just tells us, this, and uses the same verbiage, that he spared not 
his son, but delivered him up for us all. When you love somebody, you spare them. Well, he spared not because he loved us. And so the father, it, it was crushing for the father to lay the gauntlet down on his son and to punish our sins. It was not easy for the father, nor was it easy for Jesus, who took the full weight of all of our sins upon himself. And so we have different roles to play, but the key is that we love one another and we particularly live out these roles that we've been given in marriage. I think that's what Paul is getting at here in chapter 11. And I'd love to talk more with you in person as you have questions, I'm sure, and I still have many. But let me pray for us as we come to the table this morning. Father, help us to honor you, to be content with how you have made us and in the roles that you've given us to play in marriage, for husbands to sacrificially love their wives and for wives to submit and to honor their husbands. And Lord, may that picture bring glory that others would see the beauty of the church's love for Christ because of Christ's love for the church. Exalt yourself, we pray in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.